0: This week, our scripture readings give us the opportunity to reflect how we understand law in our faith tradition and what that means. Law in the religious sense might include, first of all, the Ten Commandments, as they're referenced in our first reading from Deuteronomy. Ten seems like a nice round number to me. The restrictions and commands of these 10 commandments are pretty basic. No killing, no stealing, no lying, no coveting, no adultery, no false gods, honor God and his name, honor your parents. But despite being told specifically that they were not to do so, the people of ancient Israel pretty quickly added to these 10 the 613 commandments of the Levitical law in the Old Testament. And so it is that in the Gospel today, we have this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes over the washing of hands before eating. As Matthew explains, they had laws that required washing hands before eating and washing cups and bowls and kettles and beds and things like that. So why do you suppose that these were religious laws? At the time that these customs and the laws around them emerged, it's important to remember that the civil and religious authorities were essentially the same people. And issues of basic sanitation were important. They lived in a world with no antibiotics and precious little medicine, as we understand it. So a command to wash before eating helped prevent the spread of illness. So was that really a religious law? For them, the distinction between religious law and civil law was really negligible. Did God actually care if they washed their hands? Well, of course not. But do we still wash our hands before eating? I hope so. And let's just let me mention that after Mass every Sunday, after shaking a few hundred hands, I don't even take off my vestments before I sanitize my hands. And even the lavabo, that little ritual that the priest does when preparing the altar before the Eucharistic prayer, that still has its roots in that same Jewish law. So we have of these ritual washings what could be called positive law. It's enacted by a properly constituted authority for some specific purpose. But the church also deals in the realm of natural law, which can be understood or derived by reason and by observation of the natural world. Natural law can be universally understood, at least in theory. But the church also has canon law, and this is a code of some 1752 laws that the church has derived over the centuries that determine how the church operates and what its members have as responsibilities and what they enjoy as rights. Canon law governs governs the sacraments, most notably marriage, but the other ones also, and the administration of the church from pope to diocese to parishes clergy, and lay people. And this all can seem at times like quite a contrast to Jesus, who when asked about the law, said that what mattered was complete and total love of God and love of neighbor. Everything else derives from those two things. It's very easy to get caught up in religious law with the way things are supposed to be as a means of correcting or controlling the behavior of other people. I am sure that many of you have, at some point, had someone tell you that something, maybe eating meat on a Friday of Lent, or maybe missing Mass on a Sunday, was a mortal sin. But the truth is, the Church does not have a list of mortal sins. That's not how it works. Instead, we teach that for a sin to be considered a mortal sin, three things have to be present. It must constitute grave matter, it must be committed with full knowledge of its sinfulness and gravity, and it must be the result of a deliberate act of will. Now, it's important to break those down a little bit further, because when we say something is grave matter, does that just mean it's something really serious? No. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says says very specifically, what is grave matter? In paragraph 1858 of the Catechism, it says that grave matter is something that directly contravenes one of the Ten Commandments, period, end of paragraph. That is what constitutes grave matter. And with regard to uh, a full act of will and a deliberate act, It is worth pointing out that anything that is a mitigating circumstance that diminishes one's moral culpability means it cannot be considered a mortal sin. So for example, anything that in your life is habitual, that is a mitigating circumstance, and therefore is not a mortal sin. It's important to note that you cannot commit a mortal sin accidentally a better way of understanding it is that a mortal sin fundamentally changes the, t- the trajectory of your life away from God and goodness and towards evil and darkness. So, meat on Friday, probably not a mortal sin. Now, I think it's also important at this juncture to say something about venial sin because most people mistakenly think that the word venial means trivial. And that is not what that is either. A venial sin is not a sin that's not serious. A tiny little hole, given enough time, can sink a ship. And if you have a lot of tiny little holes, it'll sink the ship very quickly. So simply saying that something is a venial sin does not mean it's not serious or need to be attended to. Church law is based on Roman law, which functions differently from English common law, which is what American civil law is based on. English common law, generally speaking, establishes minimum standards of behavior that all people are expected to meet, as opposed to Roman law, which establishes the ideal that we are all supposed to strive for. Roman law is capable of making exceptions and allowances for those people and circumstances that cannot live up to that ideal. Traffic laws are a good example. We regard lane markings, stoplights, and speed limits as, basically, absolute boundaries. Have you ever experienced traffic in Rome? There may be four lanes painted on the asphalt, but if they can squeeze six cars across, they will it's a completely different understanding of how law functions. Americans tend to interpret church law the way that we understand civil law. But church law is not based on roman uh, it is based on roman law and so it has to be interpreted that way. It establishes the ideals that we strive for, not the minimum behavior. In american law, english common law, if there is a law that we cannot achieve, It's regarded as a bad law and we have to change it as something that is unenforceable. But an understanding of Roman law is that it's important for us to maintain that ideal. And if we can't reach that ideal, then we'll make some allowances. Law, even religious law, changes over time. Today, we wash our hands not because God commands it, but because we know it's a healthy thing to do. Many of the other laws of the Old Testament are things we pay no attention to anymore. I myself am at this very moment wearing garments of mixed fibers, which was strictly prohibited in the book of Leviticus. The prohibitions of the old law against eating shellfish or the requirements to stone women caught in adultery are things we don't really pay much attention to anymore. At least, I hope we don't because our understanding of God's law is also based in our ability to reason. In the Gospels, Jesus tells us that it's what inside us that matters, for better or for worse. St. Paul, throughout his letters, but especially in Hebrews, explains that any relationship that's entirely rules-based is going to fail because we are, generally speaking, not capable or even inclined to follow all the rules. So instead, our relationships, and especially our relationship with God, should be based not on rules, but on love. Love one another. Love God because God loves you. Treat each other with compassion, justice, and forgiveness, because that is how God treats you. And that is ultimately more important than the law, whether it's 10 Commandments, 613 Mosaic laws, or the 1,752 canons of the Church. Laws are necessary for the function of society and for the Church. But love is what is necessary for the salvation of our souls.